Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Dorothea Lange and William Blake. First up, Philip Brookman, the curator of Dorothea Lange Seeing People at the National Gallery of Art in Washington. The exhibition presents Lange's decades-long portraiture practice in over 100 photographs, pictures that range from the Great Depression through the 1960s. Dorothea Lange Seeing People is on view through March 31st, 2024. The exhibition catalog was published by the National Gallery in association with Yale University Press. Amazon and Bookshop offer it for about $43 to $51. On the second segment, William Blake Visionary at the J. Paul Getty Museum in Los Angeles. If you enjoy the program, please remember to tell a friend and to give us a five-star rating and a review wherever you listen to or download the show. Thanks very much. Philip Brookman, after the break. This season, the MCA Store is your one-stop destination for holiday shopping. With a variety of home decor, books, art, plushies, and more, we have something for everyone on your list. Stop by Tuesday through Sunday or start shopping now at mcachicagostore.org. On view through January 14th at the Getty Center, the new exhibition William Blake Visionary explores the unconventional art of painter, poet, and printmaker William Blake. Now celebrated as one of the greatest artists of the early Romantic era, Blake was largely unrecognized during his lifetime and lived mostly in obscurity. Follow his journey as an artist from his early years as a commercial printmaker to the legendary creator we know today, exploring Blake's wild imagination through acclaimed works that have perplexed and delighted audience for over 200 years. This major international loan exhibition is organized in cooperation with Tate. Plan your visit and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. Support for the MAN podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation in St. Louis, presenting Sarah Crowner Around Orange, curated by Stephanie Weisberg, on view from September 8th to February 4th, 2024. Bold abstraction and intense color are signatures of the New York-based painter Sarah Crowner, who brings these elements to the Pulitzer. In three new site-specific artworks, Crowner pays homage to the architecture of the Pulitzer's Tato Ando building, and the vision of Ellsworth Kelly, whose monumental wall sculpture, Blue Black, is on permanent view in the Pulitzer's main gallery. Check out the exhibition on the Pulitzer's digital guide through Bloomberg Connects, the free arts and culture app. The digital guide takes you behind the scenes at the Pulitzer with exclusive multimedia perspectives from artists, curators, and more. Use the app to plan your visit, then easily access helpful insights on site. Afterward, dive deeper into your favorite works at home or anywhere, anytime. For more info, visit pulitzerarts.org. And we're back. Philip Brookman, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Tyler, I'm happy to be here. Far Western photography in the United States is generally known for its interest in the land. Why was Lang interested in people? Dorothy Lang grew up in Hoboken, New Jersey, essentially studied photography by, you know, getting a job with one of the great portrait photographers of the time, Arnold Genty, in New York City, after she left high school. Then she apprenticed with several other portrait photographers. And I think she was just, she was really interested in, you know, the idea of, of, of photographing people, partly from studying with, with photographers who were doing that, making portraits in, in a studio and, you know, getting paid for it. But I think, you know, to really understand Lang's interest in people, you want to go back a little bit to when Lang was a child. She, as I said, grew up in Hoboken, New Jersey. And when she was quite young, she had polio. And she thinks of that experience. And then the rest of her life, she walked with a limp. So that experience helped her to have empathy for other people who were less advantaged than her. But then also, you know, when she was a bit older, her, her father leaves the family and she and her mother and her younger brother move in with her mother's mother, her grandma, Lang's grandmother. And then Lang often uh, would travel to New York City with her mother who had to get work and worked as a librarian in the Lower East Side of New York City. And so Lang was 
you know, after school, kind of left to wander around the city. And she, she spent a lot of time, you know, walking the streets of, of the Lower East Side and you know, kind of going across town and uptown and all around. And she remembered, you know, how interested she was in really looking at people and observing what was going on around her was a very different, you know, kind of world that than she knew in, you know, in the suburbs across the river. She, I think, had a, a tremendous interest in just looking at people and, you know, kind of this art of observation. And she then also credits that as one of the things that leads her to understand that she would be a photographer. I think her attention to detail comes across loud and clear in this show. Lang's eye for detail is is really as good as it gets. You mentioned Arnold Genta, in whose studio Lang worked for a time. Genta, of course, goes on to become a, a San Francisco society portraitist and chronicler of, of Chinatown before European-Americans uh, took the excuse of the 1906 earthquake to blow it up. Lang says of Genta, he could make the plainest woman an illuminated woman. I watched him do it. How did Lang's experience with Genta first migrate into her own work? I think that Dorothea Lang, you know, learned a lot about portrait photography, especially studio portrait photography, from watching other people work. So she says she watched uh, Genta at work. She actually got a job out of high school uh, answering the phone in his studio. When other people were sort of out of the office, she would sometimes be assigned to do other things like retouching prints or negatives. So she, she began to learn a little bit about, you know, the kind of technique of portrait photography. She didn't really learn how to operate a camera until later. But I think that what she, what she got from that observation was a lot about, you know, how, just how important it was to have professional lighting and to work hard at posing people and also to to understand them to you know speak with people to understand who they were in order to be able to make a picture that would evoke who that person wanted to be so she i think learned you know a lot about just you know connecting with people you know from those early experiences in the new york portrait studios you know how does a photographer do that and of course, you know, Lang said that Gente could photograph women because he, he loved women. And, you know, I think that's a kind of simplistic view of, of the whole thing that, you know, he, he certainly, you know, was able to make that connection and, you know, make photographs that, you know, somehow connected how those people would want to be seen, you know, with what he was able to produce through the lens. That soft pictorialism of Genta's finds its way into Lang's early portrait work, you know, in the 19-teens. Would it be fair to say that Lang found her way into and then out of pictorialism? And why did she choose to leave it behind? Yeah, it's fair to say that Lang was a pictorial photographer early in her career. In some ways, that was the style that clients wanted, you know, in the first years of the 20th century. And that's what she learned. So, you know, studying with people like like Genta and then, you know, she took a class, you know, kind of short term study with Clarence White, who was a extremely well-known, important pictorial photographer, the late 19th and early 20th centuries and a member of, you know, kind of the, the Stieglitz circle. And so I think that Lang understood photography kind of through their lenses. And she certainly wasn't alone. Other photographers who Lang met when she first arrives in San Francisco and begins to set up her own portrait studio were also, you know, heavily invested in in pictorialism. And I'm thinking of Imogene Cunningham, for example, whose, you know, whose work, especially prior to 1920, was, you know, soft focus and and very much, you know, in the spirit of, of East Coast pictorial photography. And uh, Edward Weston as well. Weston, who she knew, you know, was making portraits. And that was really the, the major style. So how does she come to leave it behind? I think that, you know, in, in San Francisco, in the late teens and early 20s of the 20th century, there's, you know, a real interest in beginning to, you know, kind of find a new way to, to break the rules and 
in some ways, I think that photographers there were maybe more irreverent about the kind of traditions of, of photography that had been so well established, you know, both in Europe and in New York. And so Lang especially, I think, you know, began to experiment with, with composition, uh, you know, kind of bending a little bit, you know, how she would make pictures in the studio by, by kind of pushing figures off to the side, to the edges of, of the frames and, you know, leaving a lot of empty space. And then, you know, one of the, one of the people that Lang meets in 1919, when she, not long after she begins working in San Francisco, is the painter Maynard Dixon. Dixon was, at that time, one of the best-known artists in California. And, you know, I think that he was, you know, maybe more than the photographers, a kind of connection for Lang to the kind of evolving sense of modernism in California. And, you know, it's not only happening in California, but that's really what Lang was seeing and, and learning. So she, you know, meets Maynard Dixon and actually marries him, you know, when she was still quite young and they were married for, for a period of time. And I think that Lang's connection to, to Maynard Dixon and his interest in, you know, Western subjects and in indigenous subjects and also in illustration and mural painting and all those things, you know, and, and, you know, bringing into his art, you know, the kind of modernist aesthetic that you see in, you know, in, you know, early American, early 20th century American illustration and billboard painting and murals and all of that, you know, that did have an impact on Lang, you know, straight lines and angles were, were something that I think she was interested in. And, you know, quite quickly, the, the kind of pictorial look of her earliest work disappears. Dixon paints with a lot of hard, direct light, which is a mode antithetical to pictorialism. I am 100% sure you're right, that there is a vast Dixon influence on Lang, and I would love to see a show of it. There's a lot of really problematic Dixon, too. Yes, there is. That's true. <laughs> that I don't feel that the field has done much grappling with. And as a result, you end up with some deeply problematic Dixons hanging in places like California's most important state buildings as decorations. And, and Lang herself extends some of Dixon's problems, shall we say, with typological portraits, which we may get to as we, we go along. While we're on Dixon, one other thing that right. kind of cracked me up in, in the show, I'm not sure an, an artist has ever made a less sympathetic idealizing portrait of her husband than Lang makes of Dixon in a, in a picture of about 1930. We'll have an image of it on the website. Do you have any explanation for why Lang chose to portray her husband this way? <laughs> Which picture is this? It's plate 57, Dixon smoking a cigarette. It is unkind in extremis. You know, I, I think if I, if I see that picture, and, and I like that picture a lot because, you know, I mean, it really is a kind of intense portrait of an artist. And I think she's portraying him as an artist, as he wants to be seen more than as her husband or the father of her kids. As a bohemian. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, I think that pictures like that, I mean, it, it may well have been a photograph that was made for, for some kind of publicity that was needed for, oh. you know, an exhibition brochure or a, a magazine article. I mean, it, it's hard to oh. know, but... Uh, she did take a lot of photographs of, of Dixon, and some of them are, you know, like out on the field working, you know, like painting and with the kids. They had two kids together, a son, Dan, born in 1925, and a second son, John, who was born in 1928. She, I think, you know, photographed him a lot and in all kinds of different ways. Uh, sometimes you see photographs that she made of, of Dixon dressed up in kind of arcane costumes. And, you know, in some ways they're playing around as artists were, were known to do then. And, uh, I think the picture and the title is, uh, Maynard Dixon smoking cigarette made in, uh, circa 1930 is one that, that is, you know, it's like a portrait of an artist as opposed to a portrait of Maynard Dixon, you know, the, the person and, uh, you know, maybe something that, that she did for, for a reason. I mean, I don't really know why that picture was made, but it's one that I like because it shows him in all of his intensity. 
Oh yeah, it does. No, I like it too. I it just I like it and it cracks me up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Let's kind of move into talking about how Lang made pictures, the portraits in your show. I think one of the things that comes out of this selection of Lang's really strongly is that she made great use of how to position her camera vis-a-vis a subject. So take the famous White Angel Breadline picture from 1933 of a Depression-era breadline in San Francisco. And here and in other pictures in the show, she positions her camera above her subject so that the photographic point of view is of her looking from above down below. It's a, it's a, it's a way of making a picture that imparts the empathy we were talking about earlier. Do you have ideas about how or why she came to use this mode? Because once it kind of comes into her work here during the Depression, she uses the slightly elevated camera position over and over again for three or four decades. Yeah, I think that, that Lang fully understood that, you know, where you stand with the camera is, you know, like maybe the most important part of making a photograph when you're outside of the studio. I mean, in the studio, you have total control of where you put the camera and, and how you pose the subject. But, you know, when Lang goes out on the street with big cameras that were difficult to, to carry around, you know, she had to understand kind of where to go and, and how to, you know, how to position that camera so that she would be able to compose the picture the way that she wanted to. You know, one of the the ideas about the point of view of the camera is that it comes you know, in some ways from, from cinema, you know, cinematographers, you know, during the 1920s, 1930s would use, uh, you know, strategies like looking down at a subject or looking up at a subject, you know, to create a kind of, you know, tension or, or, you know, the, when you look up at a subject, you know, you, you give them a kind of power. They are invested with a kind of power because, you know, they're seen from below and you're looking up at them. And so I think that, you know, it's certainly something that in the air and photographers are are talking about and looking at, you know, they're looking at a lot of films and also uh, looking at each other's work. And so I think that the, you know, the way that, that Lang uses that, that strategy of, you know, positioning the camera either above or below or to the side of a subject is really important in her work. And, you know, it had to have become you know, kind of an intuitive thing for her after a while, because, you know, you need to know right where to go when you see something unfolding that you're interested in photographing. And and she certainly knew how to do that. She's quite often positioning the camera to look up at labor leaders or union members, as in Man at Microphone, May Day Demonstration, San Francisco, 1934, or a picture of a woman who may, may very well have been in the audience that day, May Day, San Francisco, 1934, a picture looking up at a woman holding both newspapers and May Day handouts. The other thing about these pictures where she's looking up at labor leaders or union members or you know later other people too, that jumps out at me is, is her cropping of images and how she direct our attention to an individual. So obviously lots of, lots of, lots of, lots of, lots of studies of the cropping and presentation of Migrant Mother have been published over many years. Do you have a sense of how she thought about cropping when it comes to, to works such as these, that, you know, the works that won't be as famous as, as Migrant Mother? Yeah, I think that, you know, Lang is, is a photographer who never hesitated to crop her photographs, you know, crop the negatives so that she could focus in. I think on, you know, the parts of a picture that she wanted to to focus on. I think, you know, a couple of good examples of, of her cropping in her early work, uh, you certainly see it in the photograph called Hopi Man, Arizona, which was photographed in 1923. And then when she printed the photograph, she actually focused right in close on just the man's features. You don't really even see his you know, like uh, much of the space around his his eyes and his his mouth. And so, you know, in doing that, I think, you know, she was interested in, you know, really, you know, creating this kind of intense uh, portrait of a man's kind of lived experience. When you, you get that close to his, you know, his face, you see all the lines and the creases and everything there, a bit like a kind of 
topographic rendering of his experience. And so, you know, I think she she was very conscious of how you could transform a photograph by cropping and and really change its meaning as well. You know, I think another wonderful example is a, a picture made a little bit later called Maynard and Dan Dixon that focuses in just on Maynard Dixon's hands embracing just the torso of his son. And the the child's hands are just kind of like positioned on top of Dixon's hands. And so it's a picture, I consider it to be a portrait, that actually eliminates most of the information. You don't see the face of, of either, you know, the father or the son. You just see their hands. And yet, because of what Maynard Dixon's hands looked like, you know, and their kind of lived experience, and then the, the child's hands, you know, just kind of gently resting there. I mean, you, you get so much about their relationship that maybe you, would, you wouldn't get if you just saw, you know, a much wider view of them. So I think Lang began to, you know, experiment that way to begin to, you know, focus in on parts of the body, especially hands. You know, she photographs over and over and over again, and people's faces. Again, it's not, it's not a, an invention of Lang's. It's something I think that she she learned and uh, and you know came to to embrace you know in part from from the notion that you could make a kind of abstract portrait was was a kind of american modernist idea an abstract portrait that would you know would be a picture of somebody using just you know maybe a kind of abstract idea about them like a, a you know like a drawing that would just show you know, like a a set of hands or something like that, or, you know, most famously, probably Alfred Stieglitz's portraits of of Georgia O'Keeffe, which he called portraits when he exhibited them. And yet they focused just on, you know, parts like her hands, her torso, her feet, you know, her legs, that kind of thing. And so I think that, you know, it's certainly something in the air. And we do know that, that Lang and Dixon together visited New York when Stieglitz was just preparing an exhibition uh, of those portraits. And and they did visit the gallery and met Stieglitz then. And so, you know, it's quite likely that, that she would have seen those pictures then. That picture, Maynard and Dan Dixon, is almost the first picture in, in the catalog. What is striking about it to me, or maybe is a sign that I'm a little slow in the uptake, is that it isn't until I saw the child's hands in that picture that I realized that we were looking at an adult and a child. It's a picture that kind of kind of takes you along for a moment. Speaking of pictures of children, I don't know why, but I was surprised there were so many pictures of children here. Um, I just hadn't thought of Lang as being someone who photographed children a lot. I'm probably very wrong. Why did you choose to want to include a number of Lang's pictures of children? And what do you think they tell us? I think Lang loved to photograph children. And certainly, you know, in the early part of her career, when she was doing studio portraiture, she photographed a lot of children and, and worked with families and, you know, documented children as they would grow up. And so it's something I think she, she became good at doing and got used to doing, you know, in, in, in her early work. And yet when you look at the work that she does for, you know, during the Great Depression, for the uh, resettlement administration and the Farm Security Administration. She continues to photograph a lot of children, and I think that's in part because she felt very comfortable, you know, working with children, and also because there were, you know, one of the, you know, the purposes of the work that she was doing uh, during that time was to be able to show people at risk, you know, what, what, what the risk was in migrant labor, for example. And I think the notion of showing children at risk, you know, it certainly carries a lot of weight. And when you look at the, the pictures that Lang made of, of children, and, you know, I'm thinking of any number of pictures from migrant mother to, you know, the picture of, of, a, of a young girl in Oklahoma City, which Lang famously titled damaged child. I think that when you, you know, certainly during during the Depression, but continuing until today, when we look at these photographs of, of children, you know, at such risk and, and working, 
you know, out in the fields picking cotton and whatnot. You know, I think that we we understand, you know, just how how in some ways desperate people were just to make a living at that time. And, you know, Lang's picturing of children, you know, only amplifies that, you know, in the same way that, you know, today, you know, I think it's it's, it's really relevant, you know, how Lang pictured children, you know, throughout her career. And, and today, you know, we are, are seeing every day in the in the news, you know, photographs of, of children at, at great risk. So I think that, you know, it's something that, you know, it's really important in, in Lang's work. And, and I think it's, it's something that, you know, runs throughout our, our exhibition. I didn't consciously go through and pick photographs of children, but I think that, you know, a number of her great photographs are, are photographs of children. I mean, I think that's completely true. Maybe for reasons related to my own life experience and biography, the blank photos of children I'd always thought about most were her Japanese-American internment era pictures, which are full of children. And there are a bunch of them here, and they're great. <laughs> Again, you know, I think that it was a kind of imperative for Lang to show, you know, the the impact of relocation on on children during the the years of World War II when she photographed uh, relocation centers and and the internment camps where Japanese American and Japanese people living on the West Coast were were sent to, and you know the the great photograph of of a girl saying the Pledge of Allegiance, uh, which is something we all grew up with, pledging allegiance to the flag. You know, I think that that, that picture, you know, it, it's a great picture in its own right, but it's so tinged with irony, uh, knowing that, you know, two weeks later, the girl was sent to a, a relocation center and then, you know, a relocation camp or an internment camp with her family. And so... I think the innocence of children who really have no control over what society does to them in some ways is, you know, it's another theme that, that runs through uh, Lang's work. And, you know, I also, also point to the photograph of the Korean child, which was made, you know, much later in 1958 as a picture of, you know, the innocence of childhood in an environment of, you know, of extreme poverty and kind of dislocation, which comes across then in her photographs. So That's a picture that Lang made in Asia while on a trip with her second husband, Paul Taylor. We'll have it on manpodcast.com. I hadn't realized how few self-portraits there are in the Lang oeuvre until I saw a picture you included in this show called Self-Portrait in Window, St. George, Utah, 1953. One, why do you think Lang made this picture? Two, why do you think she made so few self-portraits? You know, Lang, you know, may, she may have been shy to photograph herself, but I once read that, you know, in doing the research for this project, that, that there were no self-portraits by Lang, you know, that she never made any. And then, you know, I was interested to kind of, you know, follow through on that and see if there was anything out there. And there are a couple of, of self-portraits that I know. One is a picture that she made in a classroom later in her career, and it's just a picture of her foot, kind of like deformed foot. And she called that a self-portrait. And it, it represents, you know, the the impact of, of polio on her her life. And then the, the self-portrait that we have in the exhibition is one that I, I think is, you know, it's it, it really interesting and, and a kind of clever picture. And she photographs herself reflected in the window of a dilapidated building that looks like it's almost falling down in Utah. It was part of a project that she did called Three Mormon Towns in the mid-1950s. And I've always been interested in then how she kind of represents herself reflected in a building that that probably is older than she is, but maybe not by much. And that she had been quite ill for a long time. And I think in some ways she's portraying herself as uh, somebody who, you know, is living in a body that, you know, is falling apart in the way that an old building would be falling apart. Has all the kind of cracks and, you know, like bits and pieces falling off of it. So I think that, you know, in some ways it's a picture that Lang probably didn't intend when she made it to, to ever show. It, she did print it, 
and the prints in our collection now. And so I was interested in, you know, the kind of the way that she, you know, saw herself in relation to, you know, that classic American landscape that she, you know, really helped to define. And, you know, that's the landscape of rural communities, self-reliant communities, often, you know, filled with old buildings that are, you know, just being held together with chewing gum and, and uh, you know, scotch tape or whatever, you know, and I think she really related to that a lot. And she, she was also someone who related to the people who lived in those places. You know, she connected a lot to uh, communities that were, were rural, but also were, you know, were self-reliant. And she appreciated and I think respected, had a lot of respect for people who, who were self-reliant and, and could, you know, survive in, in really difficult circumstances, you know, and, you know, certainly, you know, that comes through in her, her work made during the Great Depression. And I think that's where she, she gets it from. Uh, photographers were told, you know, that one of the, the main agendas of the government then was to, you know, instill in, in people, you know, this idea, you know, that we're going to get through this economic trouble and we need to help each other and we need to be self-reliant in order to do it. And so her works do show that, you know, I think she took that to heart. Her works very often do that in, not in response to, but in the context of or surrounded by corporate power, I think, especially of her pictures of Kern County, California. Kern is an anti-famous place, even though it is among the most impactful municipalities in, in modern America. Kern was founded by San Francisco Capital. It, it was enabled by, is enabled to this day, by the only river flowing out of the Sierra, completely controlled by by private interests and not by the state or federal government. And and Kern became the oil heartland of California and is now, I think, the largest agricultural county by dollar value in, in the world. And Lang made an extraordinary body of work over many trips to Kern, including a number in this show, including, this is going to be a long title, Edison, Kern County, California, young migratory mother originally from Texas, On the day before this photograph was made, she and her husband traveled 35 miles each way to pick peas. They worked five hours each and together earned $2.25. They have two young children, and then the caption keeps going. And then they live in an auto camp, April 11th, 1940. I raised that picture all in like support of what you just said. I mean, I think it's, um, I think everything you just said is, is there. It's a, it's a, picture in which Lang offers a migrant worker as like a Dominican nun. Yeah. You know, I think it's it's really interesting to look at, at Lang's captions and, you know, and how those captions function. She gave pictures all kinds of different titles. And I think, you know, ultimately, you know, the, the titles that we see on Lang's work, you know, they come from all kinds of different places. But the work that I think functions the best is when Lang has actually talked to and interviewed people and and learn their stories and and then she either remembers or writes down you know things that they said about their lives and then when those stories become part of her captions you know i think it's at the time she was doing that you know it was a really you know like new way of making you know kind of documentary pictures to actually include the point of view and the words of of the people she was photographing. She also, you know, she married and, and lived with, you know, the, the great agricultural economist, Paul Schuster Taylor. He was a researcher. And what he did was travel, you know, around California and then around the country, uh, interviewing people about, you know, economic conditions and how, how they related to, you know, agriculture in all kinds of different environments. And, so often they would travel together and Paul Taylor would be actually interviewing somebody at the same time Lang photographed them. So I think that, you know, the work that they made together, combining her photographs with with his writing, it was a new way of, of, of telling stories with, with pictures and, and a way that actually was, you know, I think was really powerful. It enabled you know, it, it enabled a kind of mechanism of, of changing people's minds about a, a subject. Uh, I think that 
you know, one of the most interesting documents that Paul Taylor and Dorothy Lang made together is a, a report that they did for the state of California about migrant labor camps. And Paul Taylor was, you know, kind of on leave from his university job, uh, working for the state of California, helping the state to understand, you know, like the magnitude of issues related to migrant labor during the kind of middle years of the Great Depression. And, you know, one of the big issues was that, you know, so many people had come into California, they they displaced migrant laborers, especially from Mexico, who were already there. And they were living in these like pretty big labor camps that they just built on their own because they had to have a place to live. And often the camps had no sanitation, no running water. And that was, you know, a real problem. And so together, Lang and Taylor did a a kind of amazing report where, you know, they traveled around the state and Taylor interviewed people and compiled statistics and Lang photographed the, the migrant labor camps and people in the camps. And they combined the, you know, the written report uh, by Paul Taylor with the photographs of Dorothea Lang, actually the, the hand lettering on the, on the photographs that gave the kind of captions was done, my understanding is, was done by Maynard Dixon. And so it was that report that they did together was then sent to the federal government by, you know, the California state agency that Taylor and Lang were working for that got Lang's work in front of Roy Stryker, who was the head of the Resettlement Administration Photography Program, and Taylor as well. Um, they were both hired by the federal government to work doing the same kind of thing, but but nationally then. So I, I always see that as a kind of a really innovative form of documentary, you know, that was kind of being being tested out, not so much by photographers, but by by writers like John Steinbeck, for example. You know, he would like pull in all this, you know, information that that people had compiled, you know, like interviews with people you know, that then becomes the grapes of wrath. And so, you know, I think that, you know, when you begin to combine the kind of statistical reporting, you know, created by an academic with hard-hitting photographs that Lang was making, you know, it, it convinced the government to then fund uh, new migrant labor camps in California, which happened very quickly. Excellent. Philip Brookman, thanks very much. You're welcome. My pleasure to be here. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Kehinda Wiley, an Archaeology of Silence. This new body of work from Kehinda Wiley, one of the world's most celebrated contemporary artists, is on view in Houston for the first time. Through his large-scale paintings and sculptures, he confronts the silence surrounding systemic violence against black and brown people. He uses the visual language of the fallen figure with reference to Western European historical art and iconic portrayals of heroes, martyrs, and saints. In the artist's words, quote, the new portraits depict young black men and women in position of vulnerability that tell a story of survival and resilience, revealing the beauty that can emerge from the horrific. This exhibition is on view through May 27, 2024 at the MFAH. Visit mfah.org slash Wiley to learn more. Fifty years ago, celebrated San Diego-based artist Eleanor Anton staged and photographed 100 boots on their cross-country trip from Solano Beach to New York City. A new exhibition at the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego includes the 51 postcards that document the boots' journey. Also on view is work by the collective My Barbarian, whose layered performances continue Anton's spirit of social critique and playfulness. Opening September 21st on view through February 2024. See Eleanor Anton and My Barbarian at the recently expanded Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego La Jolla campus. Plan your visit by going to mcasd.org. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina presents Lyle Ashton Harris, Our First and Last Love, drawing together photographs and installations from both his celebrated and lesser-known series, the exhibition charts new connections across the artistic practice of Lyle Ashton Harris, who was born in the Bronx, New York, in 1965. The exhibition explores Harris's critical examination of identity and self-portraiture 
while tracing central themes and formal approaches in his work of the last 35 years. Lyle Ashton Harris, our first and last love, on view at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University from August 24th to January 7th, 2024. Welcome back. Next up, William Blake. With Adina Adam, my next guest, Julian Brooks, is the co-curator of William Blake Visionary at the J. Paul Getty Museum in Los Angeles. Blake was a printmaker and painter who built an unconventional, fantastical, often narrative worldview that he presented across both poetry and art. The presentation includes a colored copy of Blake's illuminated book, America, a Prophecy, a mindfully careful telling of the story of the American Revolution. Blake is at the Getty through January 14th, 2024. The Getty's exhibition catalog is available from Bookshop and Amazon for about $30. Julian Brooks, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. William Blake's training as a young man, as an apprentice, was as a printmaker and a printer, but he aspired to be a history painter and in a lot of ways, kind of the the push and pull of one focus and one profession vis-a-vis the other stays important his whole life and career. So let's start with printmaking, which in many ways, Blake, of course, never really leaves. Why and how is printmaking important to, to Blake's work and to how we think of him now? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's fascinating. I mean, Blake, you know, went to drawing school at age 10. And then age 15, he goes to apprentice, as you say, with, with James Bazir, this engraver. And he stays there for seven years. And for Blake, engraving and etching work was the sort of bread and butter through his life, basically. It's what supported him and his wife, Catherine, basically for their lives. And barely supported them. You know, it, it wasn't, it could be lucrative work, but for various reasons, Blake didn't always get the commissions he he needed and wanted to succeed, but it was vital for him. And it's something that, you know, I think nowadays we're so surrounded by images everywhere and copies of everything. And, you know, we can all take pictures with our phones that we're sort of, I think it's in a way difficult for us to put our head into a space where, you know, you have a painting by Hogarth and you have an engraving, an etching and engraving of it by William Blake. And to think that the only way of essentially getting a copy of that painting was to buy a copy of that engraving or else to do your own sketch of it. And so it's sort of interesting, you know, that Blake obviously has this through his life. But then obviously, as he begins to formulate his own ideas and he develops this technique of relief etching, which becomes very important later in his life for self-publishing his own ideas. Essentially, printmaking is is sort of what he does. Oil painting, for him, he aspired in some ways to be a sort of Royal Academy person, but he, he really didn't like oil painting. And that was a big problem because oil painting was the big game in town. And that's how you made money and fame and reputation at the time. and But he felt that oil painting totally muddied forms. It wasn't a sort of, Blake was all about outline. And he felt that oil painting sort of muddied the outline and just wasn't a true craft, essentially. So he really, on, on some level, like commercially, it was disa- a disastrous decision for him. He just decided not to paint in oil, basically. And yet he was interested in history painting, in biggest ideaist painting. How did he brook his disinterest in oil painting with his interest in big idea history painting? Yeah, I mean, essentially through through printmaking. I mean, when he he you know in the 1790s particularly, he begins publishing his own books. He has you know his, his big ideas about the American Revolution, the French Revolution, and then his you know in a way his sort of best-selling work, which Songs of Innocence and of Experience, which he publishes you know in two separate parts in 1789 and 1794, and then combined together in 1794. You know we only have 30 copies now of that, and so he probably gave away like 10 or 15 and actually sold you know, yeah, a small number. But it was, you know, essentially through his printmaking that he could explore these big ideas. And boy, did he explore them. You know, he he's somebody, you know, he's just so complex. And obviously, 
for him, you know, the great breakthrough was this really fetching technique through which he could combine the word and the image on the page. We will come to relief etching in a moment, and we will come to the American Europe works in a moment. Something you just said as somebody who's, who's an Emerson nut just really stuck with me about how, you know, Blake, many of these works were not immediately commercial successful, which is something that's kind of specific and often true across the Romantic era, where what we now consider the major touchstones of Romanticism, whether Emerson's nature in the U.S. or, say, Blake's works in England, you know, sat around for years and years before finding their audiences. One of the big ideas Blake is interested in, or one set of the big ideas Blake is interested in, is the Bible, sometimes through the Bible itself, sometimes through, say, John Milton. Is Blake more interested in the Bible as as a Christian, as a believer, or is he more interested in it as a source of grand mythological narratives, which can be made grander in visual form? <laughs> I mean, I think for him, it was something that was constant through his life. I mean, he you know, would have described himself as a Christian. He was a dissenter. You know, we know essentially he he didn't believe in like organized religion. He was deeply skeptical of the church as such. He was in modern terms sort of spiritual. But for him, the Bible was this just this incredible source of, one has to say, sort of mythology somewhat, you know, that these extremely powerful characters and powerful images, powerful stories, it's something that he sort of mined through his life as a work of literature and something that was incredibly important to him. And, and what's so interesting in when Blake starts creating his personal mythology is that, you know, some of the characters seem, you know, very like characters from the Bible. But then, the, you know, there are characters from all over, basically, too. And, the, you know, this so many things feed into his the mythology that he constructs, essentially. What might be a good example or two of Bible addressing or Bible building upon works that Blake made that are in the show? So there's a very powerful image, the body of Abel found by Adam and Eve, which it's sort of extraordinary. You know, you have this, the biblical story of Cain and Abel, you know, Cain kills his brother Abel. And Abel is seen in this image sort of lying on the ground and Adam and Eve, their parents, are you know, mourning the loss of their son. And Cain is seen in this extremely theatrical pose, sort of running away with his hands to his head in horror. And there's a grave already sort of dug for Abel and a, a spade by it. And in a way, for me, this encapsulates like Blake's relationship with the Bible. Like the scene features these biblical characters, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. But if you look in the Bible for this scene, it's nowhere to be found. Like Blake is extrapolating the scene. He's, he's going beyond what the text purely says. And he's thinking, you know, okay, the grief, the horror, the shock, and there's a grave. And, and he sort of puts it all together in his mind and comes up with this work, which, you know, to his contemporaries was in a way that's not what they wanted. You know, they wanted works that showed the stories they knew and loved and that really represented episodes they could see and read about. And they couldn't see and read about this, even though they knew the characters. So it's sort of Blake, you know, essentially taking the Bible and running with it. I'm glad you picked this one because it's maybe my favorite thing in the show. <laughs> yeah, I, I love it too. Um, it's so powerful. It has all of the romantic emotion. It has just enough kind of modern unlikelihood, that black rectangle in the foreground. We'll have an image on manpodcast.com, of course. But it also points to, and maybe the reason it, it works for me, is it points to kind of Blake's awareness of art and art history. His representation of Eve is impossible in ways that somehow managed to go beyond mannerism. Absolutely. These long, slender arms that reached out. You know, it is. It's, it's very expressive. I mean, it's all about expression and emotion. And as we know, you know, Blake regarded poses and attitudes as often capturing not only sort of an emotional state of mind, but also the character of somebody or, you know, all these different aspects. So poses were very important. And I think, you know, the pose of Cain that you have here with his hands to his head is, it, it is just so theatrical. I cannot help but think of the theater 
at the time, you know, that the theater was so big and oh, the live theater, exactly live theater. And, you know, if you think of uh, somebody like Emma Hamilton with her attitudes, you know, essentially it's sort of strike a pose, you know, and, and this is sort of in some ways it is, you see Blake in parallel to that, you know, that these poses are just very powerful, very recognizable to the audience and and just really convey everything he wants and and as you say you know the the strict sort of anatomy or whatever isn't necessarily sort of important so you mentioned that Blake's paintings and illustrations are full of amped up drama capital R romanticism at its most romantic what we would now call you know kind of over the top in a, in, a, in an entertaining and mega intense way you mentioned theater as one source for why Blake embraced maximalism, if you will. Are there other reasons, other things that would have been present in contemporary life of his time that would have informed his maximalism? You know, it, it's so interesting to think about. I mean, clearly theater was present in everything. You know, the sort of the performance of, say, politics or the religion that he's witnessing. Mm. I'm sure, you know, those things are all around him. And I think one also can't get beyond the fact that he's having visions all the time. And, you know, we know that some of his poses were poses that he saw in visions, the the famous image of the Ancient of Days, which is something he said he's, you know, a character he said he saw at the top of the stairs in Lambeth and in his house at Lambeth. And, you know, and it is this incredibly powerful pose. And it's something that he just sort of saw and witnessed in his, essentially in his mind, in his vision. Ancient of Days features a booming thunderous sun surrounded by somehow equally booming thunderous clouds. Lots of Blake's Lots and lots and lots of Blakes are full of celestial or atmospheric events, red suns, such as in Body of Abel, a a booming orange sun, which is somehow turning clouds red in the ancient of days, more hellfires than I can count. Why was Blake interested in, I guess, not only interested in, in these kind of stock natural elements, but in using them over and over and over and over again? We have very, very few pure landscape paintings or drawings by Blake. You know, there's one, the one in the exhibition is the view of Felpham, which is extremely rare. You know, it's a sketch that he made during that short period that he was in Felpham. But in many ways, you know, his, I think his vision, so to speak, of, of nature is, it's like his vision of the characters within it is this vision of drama. And, you know, we have to remember that somebody like an artist like J.M.W. Turner and John Martin, you know, those artists are working in this period too. And that it's all about the sort of apocalyptic nature of landscape, the power of landscape and the weather and the insignificant role of humankind within it. Especially Um, Martin. And uh, totally John Martin, you know, for apocalyptic and then Turner for the power, this grandiose power, you know, the sublime, this grandiose power of nature. And I think Blake in some ways is channeling that, but in a different way, you know, but you, it means you end up with all these, with these sort of dramatic scenes in terms of weather. But then as you know, we talked about with Ancient of Days, these sort of cosmic arrangements as well. And they do feel choreographed, you know, the sun plays its role in a certain place or the, they're so carefully composed, the images, and the weather or the natural phenomena sort of play their role within that, essentially. A few minutes ago, we talked about Blake's relief etching technique, a technique used in Blake's books, America, a Prophecy and Europe, a Prophecy. And you write that they could not have been published via traditional 18th century publishing pathways, you know, publishing houses and whatnot. And instead, Blake only could have published them using this technique he devised. So first, what was that technique and why was it so different? Yeah, this this was a huge moment for for Blake, where he he claimed that the, um, the ghost of his deceased brother, Robert, revealed this technique to him. 
And the technique of relief etching is it's basically a it's basically a twist on traditional etching. So in traditional etching, you cover a, a plate, a copper plate, with an etching ground, the whole plate, and then you essentially carve away the bits that you want to reveal the image, and you immerse it in acid, and the acid then bites the bits that you've carved away, and you have the plate with with that on it, which you can then ink and press. With relief etching, it is in a way what it says on the can. Like it, it's it essentially it relies on a stop out varnish. This it relies on having the copper plate and then basically drawing the image and writing the words on the plate in this stop out varnish, and the varnish then re- repels the acid. So when you immerse that copper plate in acid, everything but the bits that you've written and drawn are eaten away. So then when you take it out and clean it off and you put the ink on it, it's it's in relief. So all your your text and your image are in relief and you ink it and put it through the press. And so the huge thing for Blake was that this meant he could combine the words that he wanted, the poetry that he has, and the images on a single plate. Like traditionally, you know, if if he was trying to do it in a traditional manner in that time, he would have had to have a letterpress person, you know, literally putting all the different letters in the sort of matrix. And then you have an image, which would be separately done on copper and placed in the middle. And, and the whole thing would have had to be run off in that way. So you couldn't do it all together in the one plate. So for Blake, this meant he could combine, you know, the two things that were important to him, the image and the word in one thing. And he could do all these intricate borders around the, um, the words. He could make them dance together in the way he, that, that he wanted. For these two works, why was this the only way he could have done America in Europe? Why could those projects not have gone through, uh, for various reasons, traditional publishing pathways? I think, I mean, for, for several reasons. I mean, he could have, potentially they could have done, but in order to publish them in a traditional manner, he would have had to work with a ton of people to do that. So he would have had to work with a publisher, with somebody to do the letterpress, somebody else to, you know, manage the process. Whereas he could do it all himself in this one technique. So he could do everything from start to finish. He would have had to front the money for or else sell a bunch of copies or have somebody else front the money to do this, to do it in the traditional manner. And then thirdly, he would have had, you know, it would have been subject to censorship. So, you know, anything that was published in a traditional manner, the censors would have overseen and they would have been like, well, what's this about? This is America, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, the process meant that he could, he could do this. He could totally, he could do it all himself and he could avoid censorship. So, you know, we, maybe we'll talk about America in a bit, but he'll, you know, in America, he, he is very critical of the British government and their role in the Americas. And so that's something that it was much easier to publish himself and just put out and sell to who he wanted to sell it to rather than have it out there in the open, essentially. What is the story or narrative he builds across America and what are the images he joins to it that are, I guess, both important to the narrative, but really kind of stick with us in a lot of ways? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's as with, with, with everything by, by Blake, it's, it's an incredibly complex and so it has to be said convoluted sort of work. The narrative as such you know, is the narrative of the American Revolution, but it's told through his cast of characters. So you have a figure of Albion's Angel, which is sort of the British people slash the British government. You have this figure of Orc, who is the fiery spirit of rebellion. And that is the the, um, the character essentially of the American Revolution and, and, you know, who lies dormant at the beginning and then becomes, you know, this extraordinary uh, figure through the book. But you don't necessarily follow in the pictures that accompany the words, you don't follow the characters through, you know, they come in and out of the story. And sometimes it's very difficult to tell what who the characters are. But if we look at America, for instance, the frontispiece that we have, you know, features Orc, this 
character of sort of fiery spirit of rebellion who's sitting and with his knees in front of him and chains around his hands. We sort of see him there. And then you, you know, as you, as you go through the book, essentially his, his, sort of, his spirit is sort of through the text. But it's a narrative that is, is very complex. I definitely challenge your listeners to read it all and to, to, to work it through. And I should say at this point, you use all the time here in which anyone who loves Blake will find you know, invaluable. And that's Blake. If you, if you search for the William Blake Archive, and it's William Blake Archive, I think, dot org, I can't remember. But that has like all, basically all his work in one place. You also have all the different copies of, say, America Prophecy, and you can look at them side by side. You can see what colors ink they're printed in, how, because some of the images are then added in watercolor too, or, or added too in watercolor. So they're all different, essentially, these copies of, the, of these books. And, and you, anyway, on this website, you can see them all side by side and you can read the words and see the pictures and, and get a sense of the, frankly, of the complexity of, of Blake's world. Yeah, America's pretty wild. It, it's kind of a, it's easy to imagine it as being informed on one hand by the present, but on the other hand by Milton and, and his epics like Paradise Lost or by, Graham's just completely over the top, just Graham's over the topism. It is it is immensely fun, but it's also really easy to see why, say, George the Third and his censors would would wave it off, yeah, <laughs> or would yeah. have waved it off. <laughs> and, and in the end, it didn't sort of matter to them. Like you know, it was so under the radar because Blake was essentially you know printing it on demand in modern terms. You know, he would. He would make a few copies. He would sell what he could. If it sold, he would make more, you know. So even though, you know, America Prophecy was the first copy appears in 1793, the the absolutely amazing copy that we have on display here at the Getty, which is from the Yale Center for British Art, you know, it's the finest colored copy. That was actually made in 1807, you know, a number of years later. So it's sort of so under the, under the radar for the censors in in Britain at the time, but but it does encapsulate ideas that if Blake was really trying to put them out there and he was trying to speak in public about them and he was publishing in a traditional manner, you know, he would have been put in prison or possibly hanged, you know. And it's crazy to me as a, as a Brit to think that in the England of the day in in London in say eighteen hundred, you know, that you could not express your beliefs in that way, essentially. Benjamin West nods. <laughs> Finally, how did it happen that Blake went from being such a marginal, almost underground figure in his time to finally earning recognition and becoming, if you will, an icon of the age? Yeah, I mean, this is one of the things I find so fascinating. And it's funny because, you, you know, you think, well, what did Blake's contemporaries think of him? And the answer is, you know, most of them didn't have never heard of him. They never <laughs> knew he existed even. And, you know, a handful of them thought he was a genius and a handful of them thought he was eccentric, to say the least, you know, and possibly crazy, you know, as well. And then what it's sort of interesting what happens in the 19th century, because you have these followers of, you know, some of the pre-Raphaelites and figures, um, this movement called the Ancients, which includes Samuel Palmer and Calvert. And these people then really latch onto Blake when Blake is an old man. And he becomes this sort of incredible, like, patriarchal figure to them. And they, they absolutely adore him. They love the ideas. They, some of the imagery, the sort of, in a way, the sensibility of it really comes through in their work. And then the pre-Raphaelites, the sort of mainstream pre-Raphaelites, so to speak, like Rossetti, come to really appreciate Blake as well. But then he sort of, his his star wanes, so to speak. And you know, again, he's still known, in even in that period, among artists, among writers, but he's not in, out there, you know, it's not like his works are avidly collected in the, in the later 19th century. And, you know, there are biographies that are published of him and they have a certain market. And of course, now they're incredibly valuable to us as accounts of his life. But then during the 20th century, he just gathers steam, so to speak. And I think in some ways, like the way that 
a lot of us now know of Blake is because of his importance to a huge variety of people in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. You know, Bob Dylan, Patti Smith, Allen Ginsberg, Morris Sendak, these characters that then sort of really appreciate Blake and sort of foreground his ideas and his name. And I think what's interesting, you know, you then get a whole variety of of people, you know, graphic novelists and fiction writers and fantasy fiction writers and people like Neil Gaiman and um, Philip Pullman who love William Blake and really, in a way for me, get to the core of him and who popularize him too. And then and then on, you know, beyond that, like, I feel that the internet is William Blake's friend. Like, you know, the images are so powerful and they reproduce incredibly well. They reproduce, well, even when they're small on somebody's phone, they reproduce well. You know, I feel that a lot of people nowadays, like, they may not know the name William Blake, but they, boy, do they know the images. And the images just, you know, keep coming. And there are so many powerful images within Blake. And of course, he's a favorite of people like tattoo artists, you know, and, and such a wide variety of people and, and people, everyone has their own William Blake and they come to him through the images, through the poetry, through any number of the, you know, video games, through these sort of incredible different forms that we have these days. And so, you know, I feel that William Blake is now better known than he ever was ever, essentially. That's really interesting because as I went through this catalog and through a Princeton catalog for a Tate show from four or five years ago, I kept find, finding myself thinking about how a chronology of countercultures fed on this work, whether that was a counterculture in the 1890s or the 1920s, or as you mentioned, the 1950s. I mean, you can, it's almost like a source book for a series of responses to the dominant culture. And I think that comes comes out here loud, loud and clear. Julian Brooks, yeah. thanks so much. Thank you very much. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.